Welcome to Stories of Recovery, a MAR Recovery Resources production from MAR Addiction Treatment Centers. I'm Matt Shedd. Nick was a professional pilot, and he knew he had an alcohol problem. But despite his genuine love for flying and knowing that his career was in jeopardy, he simply could not stop himself from drinking. Not only could he not stop, because of his career, he felt like he couldn't ask for help either. Eventually, through the help of his friends, he found his way to Mar and started to access the help that he desperately needed but was afraid to ask for. In a sense, I have gratitude for these consequences because that's what got me here. Because if I hadn't gotten here, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. I mean, I have a, a, a huge success story from Mar. Mar has changed my life. Mar has saved my life because I was dying. He talks about how the professionals program at Mar helped him get his career back on track And he also speaks about his current role as a MAR employee working as the Alumni Relations Coordinator and why he feels it can be so helpful to people to stay connected to MAR after they complete their treatment. So so I spent the better part of seven years uh, in undergraduate uh, for many reasons, Uh, dropping classes, drinking way too much. You know, I just I dropped so many classes. it's, It's ridiculous. At that time when all that was going on, you know, it's taking you a while to finish, you're dropping courses. Did you have a sense that oh, maybe I have a drinking problem or did it oh, seem yes. like other things? Um, no, definitely everybody knew I had a drinking problem, including myself. I wouldn't admit to it. Um, Could you admit it to yourself or? Um, to a certain degree, but, you know, you always try and justify it as I'm just I'm just in college, man. I'm just partying. Yeah. And after college, I just haven't grown out of the college partying experience yet. Mm-hmm. You know, that's still acceptable, right? Yeah. Um, but no, I was always the drunkest guy at the party. I was always taking it too far. I was always passing out. I was always, you know, hurting myself or mm-hmm. or saying something that I wish I could take back the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, the consequences started pretty early. I just didn't realize it. Wow. Um, you know, I got in 2005 when I was uh, just turned 20 years old, I got my first DWI. And even that was not a wake up call because my brother picked me up from jail and I went right home and started drinking again. You know, can you imagine that? Like my I, I thought like I got a DWI, which is something I never would have gotten. Right. I told myself I'm not the kind of guy. To get a DWI, I don't go to jail. I don't get DWIs. I'm not a criminal. I'm not any of these things. But lo and behold, I pushed those those boundaries a little bit and got my first DWI and drank basically the moment I got out of jail. Mm-hmm. And uh, that would happen more times in my life. You know, here are consequences from drinking. Yet right after those consequences, I'm going to proceed to drink again. Try and forget about them. Right, yeah. it, it makes everything go away. Really, it's just uh, for me. It was just uh, delaying the inevitable pain. You know, just pushing it back and making it worse. Um, there were there were consequences um, for sure, but you know, I would always pull it together at the last minute. You mm-hmm. know, with for the most part, there were big periods of unemployment in there, of uh, you know, depression, of of oh, you know, so many so many things. Um, 
you know, but I, w- I would I would pull it together to, you know, get a job together or, mm-hmm. or, or you know, a career going or school or something. Um, it was never like I need to stop drinking, right? It was that I got to slow down, right? I need to moderate this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, drink like a gentleman, as the book says, uh, which is not possible in my life. I've, <laughs> I've, I've come to come to realize that that is just impossible. Um, yeah, I always knew that I needed to... I knew that I needed to stop drinking, but I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would tell myself, I'm just not going to drink during the week, right? Mm-hmm. Or I'm not going to drink past this certain point. Or this, I'm not going to drink before five. Or I'm only going to drink on the weekends. Or, you know, there's all these different methods we tell ourselves that are acceptable to to control our drinking. And, and you know, I would set up these boundaries for myself. And I would always push them. I mean, so, so quickly. Just that would just go right out the window. Mm-hmm. I'm only drinking on the weekends. Ah, but Friday, that's kind of the weekend, right? So we can start and you know, Monday, you know, Sunday, you know, night, you know. You know, when you're coming into treatments and things like that, they ask you, Have you ever blacked out? I'm like, Well, that was every day, man, you know. Which is is something weird to say out loud. You know, I was when I was drinking, I was blacking out. Or it was not a you know, it was not a successful drinking uh night, right? Mm-hmm. Which yeah, kind of hurts to say that out loud. Absolutely, man. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about what um, your training was like as a pilot and then your career as a pilot as you're also trying to manage this drinking problem. Okay. Yeah, I started uh, flight training in, in 2011. And let me back up. Uh, I've always loved aircraft. I've always – my dad always as a kid took me to air shows – and I loved every second of it. Um, uh, my grandpa on my uh, my dad's side was a private pilot um, just for having fun traveling around for his business. And uh, my dad tried it for a little while. Um, but I've always been interested in aviation. And and I was uh, coaching high school rowing and, and some collegiate rowing after college. And this was around 2011. And I was just I would see these aircraft fly by over the lake. Um, I just made it, I just wanted to be up there and I, I just love traveling, love flying. And so I, I talked to my dad and I said, I want to be a pilot. That's what I'm going to do. And he said, all right, cool, do it. And you know, the, a, the traditional way a lot of pilots get started is going through the military and, and they train you. Um, but I went the other way and, and just walked into a flight school one day and there was a guy cleaning, cleaning one of the little Cessnas there. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm looking for the flight school. He said, ah, you're it. You're, you're here. Um, you you want to get started? I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Um, and a lot of years and a lot of money later, I uh, became a pilot. Um, and it's so rewarding. And it's, it's what I need to be doing. You know, when you found that thing that you're supposed to be doing, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. I feel at home up in the sky. It just... It's just a feeling like no other. I think one of the things that drew me to alcohol actually was the freedom that I thought that it gave me. Um, and the freedom that I get while I'm flying is kind of similar mm-hmm. to that, those feelings. Um, alcohol would eventually take that freedom away and, and my flying away from me, unfortunately. Um, but through recovery, it's coming back. Um, so I went to flight school and I struggled a little bit. 
Um, obviously, I was drinking very heavily. And the process was you you become a private pilot, you become an instrument pilot, you add multi-engines in there somewhere, and then uh, commercial, and then you become a flight instructor, and then you teach for a while, and then you get the big job. And that's what I did. It took me a long time to do that because I was just so deep in addiction, just drinking so much. It was impossible to to uh, make appointments, you know, and, and to do the studying and to put in the work. Um, I eventually did enough to get by, like I did in high school and like I did in college. I graduated. I, I got the pilot's license, but it took me quite a long time. And I eventually did become a flight instructor, and I was a flight instructor for a year, and I loved every second of it. It was awesome. Absolutely so loved it. it. You said eventually you get the big job. Was that the big job? No, that was the intermediate job. Okay. Um, so I had some little jobs, you know, that I would pick up here and there. Uh, some of them I even did for free just because I would like, oh, we're flying a jet. Let me get in on that. You know, and I'd fly the right seat, which is the co-pilot seat. And uh, sometimes I'd do that for free, and sometimes they'd pay me a little bit. Um, and, and I was a flight instructor um, making, you know, $15 an hour, which at the time I thought was pretty good. But, uh, you know, it was okay. Um and then after being a flight instructor for almost a year, um, I got this job flying uh, on-demand cargo in a town called San Marcos, Texas, south of Austin. And that was the big job. That was Everybody was jealous at my flight school because, man, I was moving up. And I thought it was great. You know, I got the big job. They're paying me a huge salary and uh, fly uh, on-demand freight and... Uh, and we'd fly to Mexico in the middle of the night, you know. It was always in the middle of the night when they called because I was on call. So this was a great, great job for an alcoholic, right, to be on call 24 hours a day except on the weekends. Um, well, one weekend a month I had to be on call. Um, and they would always call at 2 in the morning. It was always 2 in the morning. You're going to Mexico. You're picking up auto parts and you're flying to Detroit. That's kind of how it went. And but we had all these flight tracking apps, so we knew where the planes were, and we knew where we are in the in the pecking order as far as uh, who was up, which crew was up number one to fly next. So so I would really I I honed that skill in to try and figure out when I could and couldn't drink, and you know it started out being okay, uh, but eventually uh, I was I was missing some flights and things like that because. I pushed those boundaries again. I set these boundaries up for myself, and I pushed them. And, uh, you know, they'd call, and I wouldn't answer. And I'd, uh, I'd miss, that, miss that flight. So, yeah, it, it, was, it was somewhat of a stressful job as well. But it was a great job. Looking back now, were there times that you were flying in terms of, like, the amount of alcohol in your body where you're like, ooh, I probably shouldn't have been flying? Oh, yeah, 100%. There were definitely times where I was flying an aircraft slightly intoxicated. Yeah. And and I can own that. And it's tough to hear because that's something, again, that I told myself that I would never do. I would never get behind that yoke of that aircraft having been hung over or drunk or either. You know, the rule is eight hours bottle to throttle. Eight hours bottle throttle. That's like the standard that's, that's industry what, rule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what the FAA says. Eight hours bottle throttle. And that's mm -hmm. probably for a normal person who has a couple drinks and then goes to bed for eight hours and then gets up and goes to the airport and 
and touches that throttle eight hours later, right? And are totally fine. That That's not the guy who's drinking a liter and a half of vodka and then sort of sleeping and then getting getting in the on the flight deck uh who's not okay that was me um really pushing the boundaries uh and like i said that's something that i said that i would never do is be intoxicated or hungover and and fly an aircraft and i did many times um some i remember one time the first time i ever did it uh, I had my private pilot's license, and I was uh, uh, I flew home to the woodlands uh, where my dad lives uh, from Austin. It's just like a forty-five minute little trip, and a I was flying a nineteen fifty-six Cessna Skyhawk straight tail, and I loved it because it was old and it had just the standard six gauges, and that's it, and it was awesome. And uh, and uh, my parents and everybody were so scared that I was flying that because I was the only person at the entire flight school who would fly that plane because everyone's like, that plane is like 60 years old. I'm not touching that plane. I was like, but it's $90 an hour, including fuel. It's great. And I flew home to see my dad and had a great weekend. Obviously drank way too much because I'd get into his booze. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've cleaned out his liquor cabinet. He just stopped buying it after a while. Um, But I remember I was so hungover the next day. And I called the flight school. Or I, th- I think I texted because my brain was hurting so bad. And they're like, we got to have the plane back. Someone actually wants to use it. And I flew a little intoxicated for the first time. It scared the crap out of me. It literally terrified me. But, And I said even then, I'd, I did this once. I'm never going to do it again. But I would, I would do it again, Matt. I did it many times. Um, and it just shows you the power of addiction that pushes you to do things that you never thought that you'd do and you said you'd never do. Um, yeah, it's just it's just powerful. It's it's unfortunate. A lot of shame in that. Um, so, is are your superiors or people in your company are they starting to get a sense like something's not? all the way right with Nick. Maybe they don't know about the drinking in particular, but maybe are they starting to get concerned? Oh, definitely. Yeah, my boss, I remember. Uh, and it's funny because I've still never met that guy. I worked for the company for two years. I never met him because it's, you know, a pilot job is not a, you know, you don't go to an office and meet with your boss. You just talk to him on the phone. But uh, I never met him. And he would say, you know, is there something going on that I need to know about? And I'd say, absolutely not. You know, I've just been having trouble sleeping, you know. I'm on this new sleeping medication. It's That's why I'm not answering the phone at 8 in the morning, not because I drank an entire bottle of vodka last night and I can't get up before noon. It's that, you know, I again, I had to lie. You know, you, you can't let people in because there's, especially as a professional, there's so much riding on everything and you can't tell people the truth. Um, because there are all these ramifications that are coming if you, right? Or you think that's, I think it's, it's, hmm. That's the thought that as a professional, I can't let people in and show that I'm weak and show that I have these issues because they're going to, they're going to fire me or they're going to take my license away or they're going to, you know, fill in the blank. Um, and that's actually not the truth. Um, 
my boss said, you know, if there is an issue going on, because it seems like there is, you know, we're going to help you through this. And I'd say, no, no, everything's great. You know, I'll be, you know, I'll be on that flight, you know, tonight. You know, we're, I'm, I'm ready. Let's do it. Let me uh, go run around the block a couple times to try and feel better and maybe sweat some of this booze out first. But everything's great. You know, I'm a professional. I'm going to get it done. And, uh, and as a pilot, there was such a need for me to complete the mission, right? To, and as a professional in general, just, just to do the job well, that I would not let people in. I would not show that I was having a hard time because I needed, I needed to do a good job. But there was, there was no possible way for me to do the good job because, because I was just so deep in the drinking. Um, yeah, so my everybody, and not only my boss was concerned, um, the other pilots that I would fly with were also concerned. Because again, just like in in high school and college, I was always the drunkest guy there. So we we worked hard and we played hard um, at this job. Um, you know, we would we would fly all night long, um, and we'd be we'd be working for fourteen, sixteen hours. We'd only be able to fly for 10 of those, but we'd be moving cargo around and doing all these different things. And when we landed, we, we would party, we would have little hotel parties. We'd meet up with other crews and, you know, fill the bathtub with ice and, and have a little hotel party. And, uh, and that was acceptable, but everybody else would go to bed. Right. Mm -hmm. And what would I do is I'd walk down to the corner store and buy some more and just have an extra, Oh, it's just another six pack. Well, we already had a 12-pack, you know, so so I was always the one taking it a little too far. Um, the work hard, play hard was acceptable, but I, I played I played double. And uh, it, it, it came back to bite me many, many times. And uh, there was a lot of people that were concerned for me. So when you're getting those calls from your boss, is there just kind of this low level of anxiety or maybe a high level of anxiety i don't know what was it like like did you sense this could get bad pretty soon here um what what was going on for you internally well it was terrifying because i was like he's gonna find it he's gonna know i can't have him know right (laughs) and it sucks because they're they're offering you these this help and it's out there and i couldn't take it um it was a huge internal struggle for me um because i knew i had a problem um, but I couldn't let them know about it um, because I thought, and and a lot of these things were these preconceived notions that I had that um, if I if I told them exactly what was going on, I was going to get blacklisted. I was they're going to strip me of everything. They're going to, you know, I'm going to be known in the industry as that drunk over there that they can't hire. Uh, but I was all of those. I was the drunk that they shouldn't hire. Maybe they did. Um, but I, I just I had all these preconceived notions of things that would go bad. But things were already worse than they could ever be, uh, and they were only going to get worse. Because um, as I continued to drink, the consequences just got worse. If I had taken help a long time ago, things things might have been different. You know, I don't know if I was in a place to accept help. I don't think. I think I needed a lot of these consequences 
to get me to a point of willingness to accept help. Uh, that was that was hard, and that's the thing. You know, throughout this process, I've struggled with a lot of shame uh, with my past about things that I've done. Um, and just coming to terms with that and uh, and just realizing that that is my past and I can't change it. Um, yeah, because in addiction, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of shame. a lot of shame a lot of constant stress it sounds like to me of trying to hide something that's getting increasingly bigger and interfering more with your work um trying to to keep that hidden it would just seem like a constant source of tension that's kind of just ratcheting up and up 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 you it know it is it is. And you know, even back when at the first day I started flight school to become a professional pilot, I knew I'm too big of an alcoholic for this endeavor. This this could go bad. And here I am. It did. It did go bad. I knew it. I just I knew it was happening. And uh but I was like, I, I can get it under control. That's the fallacy, right? Of an alcoholic is that I can control this. Is that um I can drink like a normal human being and I can, I will figure out, I will figure out the formula. Cause you know, I'm a smart guy. I can figure out this formula of if I have this, if I have this discipline, if I have this much money, if I have this schedule, if I don't do this, and I do this, I will figure out the formula where I can drink like a normal person and still be successful in this. And that is, that is, that is false. As an alcoholic, I cannot figure that out. Um, it's, I can't drink like a normal person. I, uh, it's impossible. There was a lot of stress, and trying to hide that was like a full-time job, trying to act normal and trying to act like I had everything going on and together, and I did not. Um, everybody around me knew. Everybody around me was concerned. Um, some were saying it. Some I would convince that, no, they're just crazy, right? I'm fine. You know, I do drink uh, too much, and... But I got it under control, you know. Look at look at what I'm doing, right? I'm I got a salary, I got my own place. You know, I had all the things. I had the job, I had the car, I had the girl, I had the apartment, I had, you know, all these great things, you know, material things that everybody wants. Um I would proceed to dismantle that one by one very quickly. Um But on the outside it, it seemed like I had it together. It seemed like there was a problem, but uh it seemed like I could sort of manage it. That's the thing. Um, I think in certain ways it's it might be harder for professionals with that are successful in their careers um, to get into recovery because you have all these things to point to like, well, something doesn't feel right, but I got this, 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 and this going for me, so I must not have a problem, you know? And yeah, it's right. like that it's – in a way, I think it might be easier once everything's gone to be like, okay, maybe I have a problem, you know. It is, and and I think that's what it takes sometime, which is unfortunate that you got to burn it all down to try and rebuild it all back up. Um, 
It is unfortunate. Yeah, because I did have all those things, and it did take me bringing them down. And because the crisis that brought me into Mar was a second DWI. It kind of set the scene for that. When when did you get that second DUI? What was going on? Okay, so it's February of 2018, right? And I'm on a flight, and we land in Mexico in the middle of the night, and uh, we're just getting one pallet of one pallet of cargo, and it's some auto parts, and we're we're shooting up to uh, Cleveland, Ohio, for the night, and uh, and it's the the, the flight manifest says it's 100 pounds, and I'm like, okay, I don't need to get out the, the little skates and uh, and and to push the freight, and I can just muscle it back and tie it down. It turns out it was 750 pounds, and I tried to muscle it through my back out, mm-hmm. just destroyed my back. Um, tried to hide that from the company, just like my alcoholism. And they finally were like, what is going on with you? You know, you're, you know, because people were saying, I, I couldn't even push the rudder pedals down. My back hurt so much. And they're like, you got to see a doctor. You got to, you know, so they put me on workers comp for an entire year. Right. So I didn't fly and they paid almost my full salary for an entire year. And guess what I did for that year? I I did some drinking. I sat at home. I had the surgery and fixed my back and everything was great. But I did a lot of drinking and they even cleared me to go back to work. And I kept I said, you know what? I'm good. And they they said, you can reapply for your job. And I said, no, I'm good. I'm enjoying this. Mm-hmm. I like sitting on the couch and drinking, which is just crazy. Um, so I hurt my back, was on workers' comp for a year, and then just kept drinking. And another, almost another year went by of me just sitting around. And uh, and then finally, you know, so I didn't have the job anymore, and I wasn't flying, and I didn't have the money coming in because the money ran out because I was cleared to fly again, but I didn't go back to work. So the money stopped. But I had saved up, so I was good to go mm-hmm. as far as continuing it on down the path of uh, addiction. Um, then the girl left. She had had enough. Um, and then my drinking increased a little more. I don't like to blame it on on any of these things. Um uh, because it definitely was not her fault that I kept drinking more. I was just like, man, I'm, I've lost everything. But I hadn't, right? There's Because there's always a deeper, you know, rock bottom. Is, you know, you hear that word thrown around a lot. It is, you know, rock bottom. And there, there's always there's always another bottom. There's always a lower one. Um, so uh, New Year's Eve was coming up of uh, 2019. And uh, my uh, some of my old high school buddies were... Getting together back home in the woodlands, um, so it was about about a three hour drive from uh, where I was living near Austin, and uh, was going to go back and drive into town to to see them for the weekend. And um, so I, <laughs> it sounds crazy to say this. So I was about to go on a three hour drive. So why not have a few drinks before you know just to get get the day started out right. And, uh, uh, drove to Houston and, uh, about two thirds of the way there, stopped at a gas station, got some more drinks, kept it going, and then just kind of blacked out and crashed my car. I hit a couple, uh, hit their car and airbags went off, totaled the car, um, 
And just as an, an, an aside, I had just taken my car off full coverage insurance to save money so I could have more money for alcohol because that money was running out that I had saved up. So I needed that extra $100 a month to buy booze. So I'd taken off my car off full coverage. So the car is now gone. And uh, I'm sitting there getting arrested for my second DWI, which I said I'd never get the first. And here we are on number two. And um, they said it's in Texas, they have these weekends called no refusal, uh, where it's a period of days around a holiday where even if you say I'm not doing the breathalyzer, they're going to take your blood. So I just didn't. I just said, you know, let's go. Let's go take my blood. And uh, they took me to a hospital, took my blood, checked me out, and took me to jail where I slept on the floor, concrete floor, for 16 hours. And here I am at a low point again. Um, yeah, lost everything. Lost Now I lost the car, lost, you know. Now I really was in trouble because I thought, if they barely wanted to hire me as a pilot with one DWI, what are they going to do with two? My career is officially over. So uh, I got out of jail 16 hours later, bailed myself out. I had my best friend pick me up, and uh, what did I do? Went home and drank, man. You know, it's New Year's Eve. I had planned to hang out with those friends. I didn't hang out with those friends. I drank by myself alone. A little pity party saying my life is over. Um, my career is over. I've lost everything. My health is failing also. I haven't talked about that. I was almost 300 pounds. And, you know, high blood pressure, you know, almost diabetes, all kinds of just not doing well. Everything, I I just destroyed everything. So let's get drunk. Uh not not fun. Hmm. So then how did Mar come into the picture? Um so I posted a picture as you do of your of my crashed car on Facebook and all my and I just thought it was like I was just like, oh the car's gone, you know, oh and everybody I didn't know that everybody knew what it was from. You know, I just thought they thought, oh, I got in a little car accident. No, everything's fine. The car is just obliterated. It's bad. And my friends and family are like, oh, my God. One of my best friends in the world, his name's Patrick, he uh, he said, this is not good. Nick's been going off the rails here for a long time. We need to, we need to, we need to help this guy. And I actually had helped. Patrick find treatment. Uh, I, so I went to treatment uh, my first time in 2015 at a place in Houston, a 30-day inpatient, 30-day outpatient. And I had almost a year of sobriety from that. And I wasn't working any type of program or anything. I was just just being sober. I, I made actually, I made work my uh, my alcohol at that time, my drug. I just, just worked and worked. And that's how I maintained almost a year of sobriety. Um, so afterwards, I was feeling so great, and I was like, my buddy Patrick needs help. So I helped him out at that time in 2015 and uh, turned his life around a little bit. Um, and here we are five years later, and I'm back back in the dumps, and he he decided that I needed some help. 
and got my friends and family together. And he and another buddy uh, staged a little intervention for me. And he had found Mar for me. Um, his family uh, lives in Atlanta part-time. And uh, one of their family counselors uh, has volunteered here before and knew about Mar. So my friend Patrick comes and, uh, and my friend Lucas to have a little intervention at my apartment. And of course I had a few drinks before that. Cause I was like, Hey, we're going to hang out. I didn't know that they were what they were sure. coming to do. I didn't even know my friend Lucas was in from New York city. He came to flew from New York city just for that couple hour intervention. It's crazy. Um, and they, they, they talked to me and said, you got a, you got an issue and we're going to help you. And one of the coolest things that he did was he had a bunch of my friends and family write me letters. So there's about 15 letters in there. Um, and it's just people telling me the effect that I've had on their lives and, 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 it hurt, and how it, my addiction was hurting them. And uh, I tell you what, man, those letters were, uh, were awesome. I still read them all the time. When I was in treatment in phase one and two, I, I read them all the time. Because you don't know what kind of effect you have on people until they tell you. And most people never tell you, right? And some of those letters, oh, man, you know, they just mean the world to me. Um, and it just showed me that people cared. You know, it was it was pretty incredible. Um. Yeah, you just don't know the effect you have on people until they tell you. So what are you feeling in the room at that time when you're confronted with all this information, the letters and all that? And, and So I, whew, yeah, I was just, well, at that point, I think I was so broken because everything, I just torn, torn everything down that I had the willingness to say yes. Because there was just nothing left. There was no, for me, I was just, and I think, I think I was, I was screaming out for help, but I wasn't saying anything, you know, does that make any sense? I know, I knew so much that I needed help, but I couldn't ask for it. I don't know if it was because I'm a professional, because I'm a man, because I'm just a human being who can't ask for help, but I could not ask for help but I needed it so much and I was just in this hole and I couldn't see out. And, and really I think all I needed was just, just the sight of a hand coming down to help me. And, uh, my friend Patrick was in that, in just the right spot as one of my best friends to offer that. And he just reached his hand out and I grabbed it. And, uh, I, I don't think I saw the light because I saw, man, this is going to be terrible. But it's in that moment, I just said, uh, I have nothing. You know, I, I'm willing to try anything. And they said, we got this place in called Mar. It's in Atlanta, Georgia. And I was like, eh, I don't really like Atlanta. And they said, no, this one's going to help you get your pilot's license back. They They help pilots all the time. They've been doing it for 45 years. Okay, that sounds good. Okay, well, all right, we'll give this place Mar a shot. And that was one of the best decisions I've ever made in my whole life, is just having that little bit of willingness to, 
to accept the help that I needed. Um, what are you thinking, feeling when you're on that plane going to Mars? Is it like my career's over? Um, well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I thought, I did think my career was over, uh, but I thought, you know, we'll give Mar a shot at getting it back. I didn't know that it's going to be like, you're going to do all these things uh, and you're going to get it back. Um, and I, I still don't have it back, by the way. I mean, I've done a lot of things to get there and it's still pending, but it's looking really good. I had all these things that I, I had all these preconceived notions of what I thought I needed to do. I, and they were all wrong throughout this whole process. I, I've, I've learned that my way is not the way. Um, my will gets me into places that are bad, that I shouldn't be at. Um, what was your first day like at Mar? So my first day was on a Wednesday, and I got here. And uh, Wednesday is Lake Day, by the way. So everybody comes here early in the morning and gets meds and, and hangs out for a bit. And then everybody carpools up to our lake property on uh Lake Alatoona, and uh, we have some meetings up there and uh, breakfast and play volleyball all day, and um, it's just a fantastic – Wednesday is the best day because it, it breaks up the week of feeling school. So, you know, Monday and Tuesday you got feeling school and you're in classes and groups all day, and Thursday and Friday is the same thing, and Wednesday is going up to Lake Day. It's a great day. Um, so that was my first day. And got here, and and Mar was full at that time. I think there was somewhere around 30, 30 clients in the men's center, and uh, I was just—it was just crazy. Just everybody introducing myself. They made me feel very welcome. Uh, I just felt very much at home here. I mean, I was scared out. I mean, so scared. You know, a lot of fear. What have I gotten myself into? But uh, all the guys made it made it really comfortable, and, and I had a great first day. I didn't know what the hell was going on for the, the uh, better part of a week, you know. You, so I just kind of followed my roommates around and uh, did what they did. And that's kind of the story of my recovery is is doing what the guys before me have done who, who have found success. Were there moments at Mar where you could feel like a shift in terms of like, oh, this might actually work for me? Like, this might be the thing that helps me? There were a lot of moments like that. Um, and I'll tell you about the moment where I... They, they talk about a oh, kind of a white light moment. And I had a moment, something like that. And that was um, in group. Um, there's this... There's this we use several projects uh, in phase one and two. Um, one is the life story where you tell your life story, you write it down over several weeks and then you present it. And another, uh, is called the 39s and it's the first step inventory. And that's the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, which is admitting that you're powerless against alcohol and your life had become unmanageable. And we list 39 examples of that. And I... Over almost two hours, read all 39 of mine aloud. And that's an event where I screwed things up and how I felt about it and those consequences from that event. And there were 39 of them. And 
And that was tough to do, to sit there with 30 people looking at you and telling them all these terrible things that you've done, kind of some things that I never told anybody that I'd done. And I shared that with people. And, and, uh, and that's the thing about vulnerability, you know, is that you think that it's going to push everybody away, but it draws everybody even in closer. And it's, it's, it's just an odd thing. And so I try and live my life that way and be vulnerable nowadays. But anyways, so I do, I'm doing the 39s assignment and, and I'm just sitting there and, um, one of my last 39s, uh, was very hard for me and it was um it was about how a friend of mine my friend Karen had reached out to me once um and she was she was deep in addiction we were both at the same time and she reached out to me for help and I basically ignored her I was not able to help her because I couldn't even help myself and uh and a month after she uh, reached out to me she actually passed away. She overdosed and, uh, and died. And, uh, that was really, that was really tough for me at the time, plunging me deeper into addiction. But I was sharing about that and how I had such shame from not being able to help her, but I, I, I couldn't help her. And I sat there in front of these 30 men and I cried And, and it was so powerful, just showing that vulnerability to these men. And, and it was at that moment that I, I figured out that I can never drink again. I just listed 39 huge examples. And one was that one of my best friends passed away. And I just listed all these things to these men and, uh, I just realized I can never drink again, you know? Um, and I think that was the, one of the gifts that Mar gave me was knowing that I can't ever drink again. And there's a lot of relief in that, actually. Just knowing that when I drink, bad things happen. And when I drink, it's, there's not one. It's, it's all. It's everything. Um... Yeah, it was in that moment that I realized I can never drink again. And uh, and for a lot of people, the thought of never drinking again is is huge. And for me, it was it was that case. The thought of never having a drink again in my life is just impossible. That just can't happen. I mean, drinking is such a huge part of my life. I love every second of it. I love that's what I do, you know. And and the thought of that, you, you can't get around it. Um, but if you break it down to one day at a time, even smaller, one, one hour at a time, it's manageable. But it was in that moment that I realized I can never drink again. And, and I say it was a gift that Mar gave me because I don't think that I could have gotten, maybe I couldn't have gotten that somewhere else, but I got it there, here at Mar, a place that I now consider home which is crazy to me. Had you not gone through that experience as difficult as it was, and but also I'm sure there's a, it sounds like a kind of cathartic release too at the same time. 
had you not done that, you wouldn't be able to share with us now, you know, about so openly, you know, like that, that experience of sharing with those 30 guys, you know, doing the step one inventory in front of them kind of laid the foundation for, for this and so many other things in your life. Um, I'm sure. But, uh, and I love how you described that very counterintuitive experience of your mind's telling you, if I share this, everyone's going to run out of the room. Right. But then you do it and then everyone feels closer and they care about you more. You know, it's like you have to experience that. You can't read about it. You can't hear a lecture about it. You have to experience it because it goes against everything that our minds tell us about vulnerability and um yeah a hundred percent i had all these preconceived notions of what recovery was and they've all been smashed i mean totally especially the vulnerability thing is yeah you know you think that it's gonna yeah like just like you said make everybody run away and it just draws everybody in closer and after that first step inventory assignment, everybody came up to me and gave me a hug. All these guys, you know, and I needed those hugs and it was great. A lot of people, my family included, keep saying, don't you wish you could just take it back and not drink before that drive? And I say, well, yes, because then I wouldn't be dealing with these DWIs and things. But it's what got me to Mar. So in a sense, I have gratitude for these consequences because that's what got me here. Because if I hadn't have gotten here, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. And where I'm at today is fantastic. You know, I mean, I have a, a, a huge success story from Mar. Mar has changed my life. Mar has saved my life because I was dying. Initially, it's the sense of community you get here. And that goes throughout the entire process. And it's huge. And it's it's sharing your experience and sharing your struggles with these men, which is to all my instincts and training tell me not to do that, right? Everything tells me to close off, to live by myself, to not open up to anybody. But but here it's 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 celebrated. It's that's what you do. You just you say, you know, hey, can I bear my soul to you for a second? Can I can mm-hmm. I tell you what's going on with my life? Which is so counterintuitive again. And so, you know, not what I'm used to doing. And and everybody's accepting of it. And the, com- the community is so strong. And you just go through this process with people. Um, and you become so close so fast. And, and you share in the struggles and you share in the pain. But you also share in the joy, you know. Um, and one of the things I learned at Mar is is kind of the value of sharing those things, you know, the therapeutic value of just saying things out loud or sharing it with just another individual, not the openness you get at Mar and the self-realizations that you experience is just amazing. Um, I wouldn't trade my experience here for anything. And I wish I had better answers to say what it is. What is that Mar magic? What is that that secret sauce that Mar has? And I don't know. I, I think it's the community. I think it's it's being able to be vulnerable with people, and and people that you would have never uh, shared time with outside of here. 
right? So, some are other professionals. Some are, you know, from all walks of life. And some some people that I thought I'd never hang out with are some of my best friends today. And being able to share and be vulnerable with them um, is pretty amazing. Can you say a little bit about the professionals program and what specifically um, that provides in sure. terms of treatment? Yeah, the professionals program at MAR is wonderful. Um, it's called ARP for short. It's It stands for Atlanta Recovering Professionals. And it's a set of groups mainly that, um, you know, like-minded people are together, uh, professionals. Um, on on Tuesday nights, we have small groups where it's pilots and medical professionals. And, you know, they kind of separate us into um, into professions for one group. And then we have a big group together. Um so it's just it's another group, but it it just has a different feel about it. We talk about some different things, um, and it's really helped me just to kind of kind of workshop different things that I'm going through, different struggles, you know. So being a pilot and having two DWIs, I was pretty much convinced my career was over, and they have shown me that it's not. Um, so Mars helped me set up the appointments and and do all the different testing that I needed to do and set up professional monitoring and getting with all these different people that are helping me put this packet together to send to the FAA to say, please allow this man to be a pilot again. And they're going to do that. And it's going to be fantastic. I'm going to have to be on this professional monitoring for a, a long time and do these groups. But it's <laughs> it's really doing all the things that I should be doing anyway, right? Uh, to maintain my sobriety and to be to be the best person that I can be, um, but Mars facilitated me in, in setting up all these things, and has given me a lot of hope that one day I will fly again, um, whether it be professional or just for fun. I hope it's professionally, but but I've accepted that it, it might not be. But it's looking it's looking really good. Um, Did you think Mars was going to work when you said yes? I don't know. I, I don't think I even thought that far. I was just thinking about what do I need to do in the meantime before I get on that plane. And it's funny. I tried to delay getting here a lot. I was like, oh, I got all these things. And that's a funny thing about, it's, you know, you think you got all these things going on and that all these things, you know, you think that the life is going to stop when you leave and things aren't going to get done. But what did I have going on? Nothing. So when I came to Mar, you know, the apartment was going to be fine. All these things were going to work themselves out without me intervening. You know, you think we have all this control and take that control away and everything seems to, to seems to work out just fine. So tell us about working at Mar now and your role and, and what that entails. Yeah, so I'm now the current alumni relations coordinator. That's my job title. And um, it involves a lot of things. Um, the traditional role of keeping alumni involved and uh, planning events and social media and making phone calls. Um, but it, we're also uh, changing it a little bit to include outcomes data and follow-ups and things like that. Um, and because and one of my goals here as the alumni coordinator is to really involve alumni as much as possible because, and I think it's key to success is, is I think it's really important for clients as they're when they're in phase one and two treatment to see that 
you know, people still want to come back here and like hang out at Mar and that they're having fun in sobriety and they're successful. Um, I think that's important for people to see. And one of the things that really stuck out to me when I, I just showed up was a couple of alumni who were coming for, I think on the Saturday professionals meetings and stuff, they, they remembered my name. And I don't know why that was such a big deal, but I remember just walking around being like, yeah, I gotta remember my name. That was such a big deal. And he's such a successful alumni, man. You know, I want to, I want, I, I want what he has mm. is what I was thinking. So if alumni keep coming around, we can show that life is good on the other side, that you can be successful. You can have all these things minus the addiction. You're going to have to put in some work and you're going to have to do the, the tough things, but it is good. And, and you have joy and you have all these things. Um, that's another thing that I was going to talk about is another preconceived notion that I, that I had coming into recovery was, you mean I'm going to have to work this program, so to speak, for the rest of my life? That sounds terrible. That sounds like something I don't want to do. And you, you're like, I got to go to these meetings. I got to do this and that. And I got to talk to these guys and, you know, not, and not drink over this, uh, for the rest of my life. And that was daunting. That was, uh, insurmountable to me I, I cannot see myself doing this program but really what it is is in Mar you practice all these things going to meetings being vulnerable with people being a contributing member of society again and and then it just becomes second nature it becomes more of a way of life than you know you're working this program we, we say that a lot work in this program but it really is just, it's now the things that I want to do and that I should be doing. So it's not really work. It's just, it's my life now and it's, I wouldn't change it for anything. So your job is to kind of facilitate the alumni coming around and mm -hmm. making sure people stay connected after they leave if they want to stay connected. And, and um, so that involves what exactly? Like events? Yeah, events, social media, follow-up calls, um, you know, just inviting people because we have meetings here, um, whether it's a 12 step meeting or a professionals group or an aftercare group, um, a spiritual life group. We do those on Monday and Wednesdays where we uh, talk about struggles we're having and apply spiritual principles to those things. Uh, huge for me. And I think that's something that's pretty unique about Mar. Um, I think that's something that's pretty unique about Mar, the level of alumni involvement it's like it's pretty um the amount of people that stay connected decades sometimes after coming through treatment here um i don't think a lot of people realize that when they're checking into treatment that i could be connected with this yeah. place it could be a big part of my recovery even when i'm 30 years sober you know, like it is for some people. Well, that is another kind of counterintuitive thing. It's like, wait, you want to stay connected to your rehab? That sounds like something that I don't want to be involved in, right? Uh, but it's something right now that I completely want to be involved in. I get it. Yeah. And it's been, it was said to me when I got here, you know, allow yourself to be here. You know, just relax, take it all in, and then stay connected. Because those who stay close to Mars stay sober. And I don't mean just geographically close. Well, I did that. But, 
those who stay connected stay sober. And I've seen it over and over and over. Those who drift away and then don't show up and then maybe they're experiencing some shame that something happened like a relapse and they don't show back up and they're, they're struggling. But those who come back, those who stay connected really do stay sober. It, it's, it's pretty amazing. They told me stay close to Mar and you will stay sober. Yeah. We have a huge alumni base and, and, you know, from all walks of life, you know, it's not just one type of person that comes in here, you know, there's like personalized treatment and as they, t you know, Mar, uh, helps everybody. And, and we have a huge alumni base that is passionate about Mar and cause there's something special here. You know, earlier I was talking about that Mar magic. There is something special about this place. Yeah. One of the things that I I took out of this one group when I first got here that really meant a lot to me um, was somebody said to me that we're not bad people trying to be good. We're sick people trying to get better. And that meant a lot to me because I felt kind of like a bad person, you know. I've been doing all these bad things. These things that I said I would never do. And I'm just a sick person trying to get better. And Mar helped me get better. Put in a lot of work. Mm -hmm. But I feel I feel pretty better. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you, man. This has it, been a pleasure. It's so good to be here. Yeah. So good to talk with you. And, uh, you know, our ultimate goal here is just to, you know, for me, it's just to help other people, right? Mm -hmm. That's all I want to do is just help other people. And if if I, if I what I said can just get to one person to help them, maybe just push them over the edge, maybe I'll try that treatment thing. You know, that's what I'd say is just have the willingness to try. What's the worst thing that can happen? It's going to get better than it is right now because right now is probably not so good. Mm. Um, for me, it was not good. And uh, I don't know what tipped me. But I just had that little bit of willingness and I got here and it saved my life. Awesome. Well, thanks, man. Thank you, man. All right. That's it for this episode of Stories of Recovery. Thank you so much for joining us. If you or somebody that you care about is struggling with addiction, please feel free to reach out to our assessment counselors. They'd be glad to talk with you. It's totally free and it's totally confidential. The number to reach them at is 678-736-8694. Also, if you'd like to reach out through our website, you can do that at marinc.org. That's M-A-R-R-I-N-C dot O-R-G. We have a chat feature and a contact form. You can reach out to them that way. And if you're an alumni that wants to get involved, please feel free to reach out to Nick. You can email him at alumni at marinc.org. Again, I'm Matt Shedd. Thank you so much for joining us. And we're already looking forward to next time.